0: Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this opportunity, for study of your word. We pray that you'd help us, that we would allow you to have your way first in informing our minds, and then in challenging and changing our minds, bringing us into perfect harmony with your will Minister your grace in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So we're in Exodus chapter 20. Are you happy with how your life is turning out? As we're setting out on our life's journey, we have certain ideas of how things will go. Is it working out? Is it working in the direction that you had anticipated? So I'm 42 years old, more than half of my journey on this life is complete. As I look ahead, I see major changes on the horizon. Within the next couple of years, my two oldest children will be gone. One off to school, one into military service, and everything everything will be different. That's just the way it is. I've been looking at this impending day for the last couple of years, and every now and then I say, hey, listen, we've got three years left together as we're currently constituted, and then now it's turned to do? We've got two years left together as we're currently constituted. So in two years, everything's going to change, but this is the nature of our lives. Our lives are filled with transitions, and so we have to be ready to adjust. It's essential that we learn to find our fulfillment in the one who doesn't change. If our, if our perfect little home with our two parents and our five children is what we find as the ideal, and this is where I find my satisfaction, sooner or later, that's going to come crumbling down. If I find my satisfaction in my spouse, well, there's a coming day that's not going to be there anymore. You know, either I'm going to go to be with the Lord or my wife's going to go to be with the Lord. That's going to, it's going to go away. If, if I find my satisfaction in my house, well, things change. Things break. Sometimes, um, sometimes you don't get to stay in the house that you find so much satisfaction. And if we find our satisfaction in things that change, we are we're really uh, setting ourselves to be on a rocky, sandy foundation that can crumble underneath our feet. It's essential that we find our fulfillment in the one who does not change. God, in preparing his people for how life works best, having redeemed the people of Israel from Egypt, lays out for them ten commandments. These ten commandments were not how how to get to God. God. That was not what they were for. No one could, has or ever will, be saved by keeping the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments were laid out by God, having redeemed His people for the sake of telling them, "This is the best way to live." A number of these commandments teach in connection with the concept of contentment. We in uh, Exodus 20. Take a look, please, at the first six verses, Exodus 20, beginning in verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That's a declaration of his relationship with his people and what he has done for them. Having declared who he is and what he's done, now he says, This is what you shall do in response to my saving work. Verse 3 You shall have no other gods before me. You shall make for yourself, or you shall not make for yourself, a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. I just want to point out in these few verses, particularly in verses 2, excuse me, verses 3 and 4, what God is telling them. Don't choose other gods. I am the Lord your God. He already stated it. I have already redeemed you out of the house of slavery. I am the Lord your God. Don't seek other gods. Why would someone seek other gods? Because they are not content with the one who has revealed himself and acted with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Don't make for yourselves, in verse 4, carved images. I need something I can feel. I need something I can see. I need something that will be representative for me of the one I worship. And God says, you don't need it. Be content with what you've already heard of me and seen of my power in your life. So these things, while they deal with worship, deal with contentment, and covetousness. As you turn to the second table, the table that deals with our relationship with other people on earth, look at verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. Adultery is sexual relationships outside of the bonds of marriage. Why would someone do this? Because they are not content with the one that God gave them. Look at verse 15, you shall not steal. Why does someone steal someone else's property? Because they're not content with the property that they already possess. Look down at verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. So, where he lives, his one flesh companion, those who are serving and meeting his needs, those animals that are service animals, maybe even his chariot. Don't covet your neighbor's chariot. He's got a really nice chariot. Well, Why are we coveting? What's the reason? Because we're not content with such things as we have. So even just a cursory look at the Ten Commandments, God is revealing the human nature. Human nature. The reason God is laying these things out is because he knows what is in man. He knows what is in me. He knows what is in you. We're not content with our God. We're not content with his being transcendent. We need something we can have imminent, something near, something we can feel, something we can see. We're not content with the blessings that God has already placed in our lives. This is just natural. This is who we are in our old man, in our flesh. There are countless ways in which we can be discontent. If we were to characterize them, we might say we can be spiritually discontent, we can be financially discontent, we can be sexually uh, discontent, any one of these areas, they're all driving at this one area of our contentment. Take a look with me now at our text for this morning, which is found in Philippians chapter 4. You'll find that on page 982 of one of our church Bibles, 982 Philippians chapter 4. What we want to notice this morning, and we already read this in our responsive reading, we've already read this in our responsive reading, we want to notice three truths regarding contentment. First, we'll start by reading the text again. You'll remember that we've come to the final section of the book of Philippians, other than the final greeting And Paul is writing a thank-you portion, thank-you note to the Church of Philippi. And he lets them know he's really grateful for the gift that they gave them. At the same time, he wants to let them know that life is not about receiving gifts. And that had they not given him a gift... He would have been okay. And it's not to disparage the gift. It's not to belittle the thank you note. That is not the idea. The idea is is him demonstrating that there's more to life than receiving payment. In verse 10 of Philippians chapter 4, he says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length or after a period of time, you have revived your concern for me. Yet you were indeed concerned for me but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need. The word there is in poverty. The same word is used in the discussion of the widow's two mites. When this lady gave her two mites, the little two two pennies, essentially, she, she was giving out of her poverty. Not that I'm speaking of being in poverty. Well, let's think about that for a second. Where is Paul at this moment? He's in home imprisonment. He doesn't have a way to make any money, and he doesn't have a savings account. He actually is in poverty. But he's saying, I'm not writing this thank you note because I'm destitute and and I and I and I can't live if living is without you. You might have heard that one before. <laughs> Verse eleven. abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you. And he goes on with the thank you note. This little parenthetical or this little excursus on contentment. And, and it's such a treasure for us. I, I hope that you see the truthfulness inside your own soul of areas of discontent. If If you were not to believe that you have areas of discontent within you, you would be telling yourself that you wouldn't sin any longer. Sin arises, according to James chapter 1, out of lust within us. I need this. I need this. I must have this. We believe lies. That this item, whatever it is, will produce within me some form of happiness or contentment. James tells us that these things arise, these temptations and sinfulness arise from our own wickedness. Contentment, we must first notice, is not based upon circumstances. Contentment is not based upon circumstances. He he makes this abundantly clear and, and he's laying out for us a reminder that contentment, this is what we're going to see eventually, only comes as a result of God's gracious endowment, God's gracious plenishment. He gives and he gives us what we need so we can be content in him. Contentment is not based upon circumstances. He makes it clear in verse 11. He says, not that I am speaking because of being in need for i have learned in whatever in whatever situation i am to be content and, and he uses very generic greek terms here when he says whatever he's using like an article an article is like the or things in whatever he doesn't even use the word situation that's supplied for us by the translators he says i have learned in whatever to be content And he says the same thing in verse 12. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every thing. It says circumstance here, but it's not in the Greek. In any and everything, I have learned the secret. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance, abundance and need. So he uses these contrasts. In whatever situation, in any and every circumstance, brought low, abound, facing plenty, hunger, abundance, and need. Why does he use these, these two pendulums, these two poles on the opposite ends of the pendulum? What is the reason? Well, there is danger in both poverty and in prosperity. There is danger in both poverty and and prosperity, not just one of these uh, ends of the spectrum. Both of them are challenges to our contentment. The words of Agar, whenever we read a proverb, we think, well, this is Solomon, but Agar wrote uh, Proverbs 30. Look at what what he wrote there in Proverbs 30, verses 8 and 9. "'Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches.'" Feed me with the food that is needful for me. I should probably read that statement every day. Just the food that's needful and no more. Lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. He makes... He makes this statement, poverty brings one set of challenges toward my contentment and riches brings another challenge to my contentment because I start to find my contentment in the thing given rather than the one giving it. We all struggle here. We, we all struggle here. Sometimes we don't have enough and sometimes we have plenty When we don't have enough, we want more. When we have plenty, sometimes we still want more, but oftentimes it takes our eyes off of the one who provides it. If contentment were based upon circumstances, we would be in a constant state of flux. Our contentment levels would rise and descend, rise and descend, because the things we have rise and descend. When we have something uh, that we finally attain something we've wanted, uh, we will be uh, have a sense of satisfaction until the new toy smell wells, uh, wears off, right? Uh, it has happened to all of us. Yeah, I want this thing, and, and we get it. It's like, all right, this is great. And then you can kind of live on that thing for a little while, and then, yeah, it's just another thing. It's one of the things we've accumulated or accomplished. We've done it. See... The, the obtaining of something doesn't have to be an item, right? It can be an experience. I've always wanted to climb Mount Washington. I got there. It was glorious, and there it was. Then like, you move on to something else. There's something else that's the new mountaintop experience you're looking for. Contentment is not based upon circumstances. That's what Paul is telling us. Now, who's the real author here? God is the real author. God wants us to know you can be content with nothing and you can be content with a lot but the lot and the nothing are not the source of your contentment there's some one else secondly we want to notice this contentment is learned contentment is learned he uses two different greek terms to teach us something this is it's pretty cool in verse 11, he uses the word manthano. He says in verse 11, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned, there's the word manthano, it's to come to know. I have come to know. Well, how did you come to know it? Well, there are two ways of learning something, right? There's learning it academically or theologically, and then there's learning through experience. And oftentimes, the best lessons are those that we learn theologically or academically and then experience. Try having to teach on contentment in a week. Try studying all week and previous on contentment and see if the Lord doesn't give you the opportunity to test the things that you are studying and about to communicate about. This is one of the great privileges of teaching is the Lord always tries you in some way on those things that you're about to expound from the pulpit. Oh yes, this is the way real Christian living works. A, B, and C. All right, let's see how it works in your actual life. The the Lord has a very kind way of bringing these things to your attention in the process for preparation. Contentment is learned. Manthanah, to come to know. Uh, we learn things in different ways. Well, Paul and, and many of the authors of Scripture have given us some great theological truths that we can look at their statements and say, all right, this, this, is, this is correct, and I, and I want to learn from it. And so we study them. And so I'll, I'll draw your attention to the book of Micah chapter 7. This will be on the screen to my left and right. Listen to what Micah wrote in Micah 7, 5 through 7. He wrote, Put no trust in a neighbor. Have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. Now, I don't think that he's making this statement like, No neighbor is trustworthy. And no friend should you ever have confidence in. And certainly don't trust your wife. That's, his point is not to undermine those relationships. It's to exalt something else. Okay? It's to draw our attention to a better way than those uh, human relationships. For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. In other words, when you are troubled, you can communicate with these others, but that can't be the source of your satisfaction. Your expectation, my expectation, and my hope need to be above the human level. It needs to be on God. He will never, ever forsake us. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 5, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. Our sufficiency is from God. The context there has the idea of being those that are channels of God's work, that we're letters, little letters from God to people. We are little gospel messages, but that gospel does not find its bedrock in this guy. The gospel doesn't find its bedrock in these people. The gospel, its sufficiency comes from God. And if if the letter that God is writing is going to really pronounce itself and declare itself and be seen, it's going to be because God produces that sufficiency in us. He goes on in the next chapter to talk about how we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the sufficiency might not be seen in us, but in God. And so our sufficiency is from Him. Already in this letter that we've been studying, Philippians 1, Paul made this statement when he was talking about life and death. For me to live is what? And to die is? For me to live is Christ. My sufficiency is found in Him if my sufficiency is in my job, well, that, that, that success rate is going to come and go. And we're going to have a lot of ups and downs. And it is a tragically and truthfully, tragically and truthfully, the understanding that pastors and ministers of the gospel have ups and downs. They have for many years. You can see it in Paul's life. You can see it in... Um, the Puritan days, you can see it in, in modern times. The pastor's mindset is up and down. Because everything you do, you pour your life into the proclamation of the gospel. And when you don't see the things you're, you're so desirous of seeing, it can really crush your spirit. And if, if, if you live on that, if that's your sufficiency, oh, whoa, is that one. I have lived it. And praise God have lived to tell about it um, because God is kind enough to rescue lowly people like me from putting my priority in the wrong location. It happens to all of us, folks. Our sufficiency must be found in an unchanging and unfaltering God. This is who the Bible continuously points our attention to. Yes, there are examples in this life, but all those examples may be filtering the attention to Christ. He is the only one who will never leave you sad. Take a look at Hebrews chapter 13, please. Hebrews chapter 13. If you're following along in one of our church Bibles, that'll be found on page 1009. In Hebrews chapter 13, we have this great statement We sang about this in one of the songs we sang this morning, and I love how the the writer of that hymn reflects the strength of how this is communicated in the text, and it's an old song, how firm a foundation, and he communicates the fact that there are five negatives, five negatives in this passage. There are negatives that are positives, just so you know. Look what he says, beginning in verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. In the midst of that one short sentence, there are five negatives. And so the hymn writer got, uh, uh, he will never, no, never, no, never forsake you. I think is how it is communicated. Uh, so he, he captures those five negatives. When we use English, we say, okay, if you get if you two negatives, they offset each other. So no, no means yes. No, no, no means yes. But no, 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 well, that, now we have an odd number. Now we have a negative. That's not how it works in the Greek. He's just saying, no, 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 no. I will not leave you. I'll never leave you under any circumstances. God makes it abundantly clear. And so, verse 6, the response of the reader. So so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The, The confidence that arises from the one who knows that God will never, under any circumstance, forsake them. And it is the source, it is the bedrock of our contentment. And he communicates two different main ideas that demonstrate a lack of that contentment. The marriage bed, not being sexually content, and the love of money in verse 5. Those ideas of of going outside of God's plans, outside of God's directives, will show us that we are not content with Him. So when God says, I will never, no never, no never forsake you, we say, that's good, but I also need, and I also need. So contentment really is is a really important concept that we have to see into the heart of it. This is not the only place in the New Testament where we have this kind of a challenge. I'd like you to turn also to 1 Timothy chapter 6 that's found on page 993 of one of our church Bibles, 993, 1 Timothy chapter 6. Remember what we're talking about at this point. The first concept from Philippians 4 was that contentment isn't based upon our circumstance, Secondly, contentment is learned. And so as we're looking at these texts of Scripture, we're, we're hearing God warn us about contentment and where our contentment should arise from. And so we're theologically informing our minds or refreshing our minds so that we make sure we also learn. We come to know as Paul did. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, in verse 6, look at what he says. But godliness with contentment is what? And I wonder if there's a connection between godliness and contentment. What does godliness mean? I want you to just kind of roll that around in your brain for a minute. Try to come up in your own mind, what does godliness mean? I was refreshed in my mind a number of years ago about the concept of godliness over against ungodliness in reading through Jerry Bridge's book, Respectable Sins, Confronting the Sins We Tolerate. Because, you know, I'm just going to be honest with you. At that time, more so, I think the Lord has has, uh, revealed more to my brain of my own weakness now as opposed to then. But as a general rule, at that point in my life, you know, I, I have dedicated myself to serving god that that is it's like my it's my most important desire so i don't think of myself readily as ungodly like everything i do from one thing to the next is like leading toward People to the gospel, whether it's in my house or in my office or from the pulpit, right? This is what I do. This is what I want to do all the time. And so when I think ungodliness, I think, all right, well, I can skip over that chapter. That'll be easy. But Jerry Bridges, thankfully, through the Lord's working, wouldn't let me off the hook quite so easily. Godliness is not about doing X or Y, Godliness is about your affections. Godliness is about what occupies your mind. Ungodliness is being not consciously aware of God's sovereign governance of our lives. Whereas godliness is a constant awareness that God superintends over my life and I'm living my life out in his presence So when I'm cleaning up balloons on the side of the church, picking them up, and I say, eh, good enough. Good enough. And I walk away. I'm not living my life consciously in the presence of God if I'm leaving little bits over there. If if it's my turn to sweep the floor, which happens quite regularly, and I, eh, Good enough in the corners. I don't have to really get underneath that thing. I'm not living my life out consciously in the presence of God's sovereign governance of my life. I am living consciously of my own presence, my own awareness, and what anyone might notice. The reality is the more we are consciously aware of God, the more we recognize, you know, the words I'm about to say to so-and-so are said in the presence of God. The thoughts, I think, sitting in my office all by myself, they're thought out in the presence of God. Covetousness, contentment, opposite sides of the spectrum. There's a relationship between godliness and these terms. When I am consciously aware of who God is... In his fullness, when I am consciously aware of his amazing mercy and his boundless grace, my thoughts ascend upward. And I naturally do what Colossians 3.2 says, set my affections on things above, not on things of the earth or do quite naturally what the author of Hebrews tells me in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of my faith, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, he despised the shame, and he's now set down in the right hand of the throne of God. We do this naturally when we are consciously aware of God's mercy and grace. But as soon as we move ourselves away from it. Godliness goes out the window. And so also does contentment. Verse 6 again. But godliness with contentment is great gain. It It is of greatest consequence to be content in the presence of God. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing... With these, we will be content. I wonder if that's enough. I'm not questioning God's word. God's word is inspired. This is from God. I also believe that God would not disagree with me to say, without food and clothing, let us also be content. I don't think this is an exhaustive statement. I think it's a general statement. Paul said, I've learned how to Be abased. What that means? Humbled. Brought low. Having nothing. I've learned how to do this while facing plenty. And what? Hunger. Hunger. No food there. Can we be content while hungry? Not so easy for me. However, if I'm living my life out in the presence of God and I'm recognizing it, say, okay, Lord, this is what you have for me. This is what you have for me. When you're ready, when when you want me to be supplied, you'll give it. When you don't, you won't. I need to learn, by God's grace, to come underneath this. And so he gives us some warnings in verses 9 and 10. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Wow. Verse 10: For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and perceived or excuse me, pierced themselves with many pangs, or in other versions, they've pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Demas hath forsaken me. Remember that? Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. Well, he wouldn't say that of Joe Schmo. Joe Schmo has forsaken me, having loved this present world. I don't even know who Joe Schmo is. But Demas was a fellow servant of Christ. And his eyes were diverted from that which is important. His eyes were were lowered onto a different plane. And as a result of that, he's seeking something that this world has to offer. He's seeking something that this world will satisfy him with. And God gives us a warning. Those who love these things, who seek pleasure in these things, will pierce themselves through with many joys. That's what we are seeking when we're going after something. uh, This will give me joy. This will give me peace. This will give me contentment. This will give me something... I'll be happy. And God says it'll pierce you through with many sorrows. It will never satisfy you. Because you'll get, you'll get what you wanted and you'll find out who you really are. That's the thing about riches. Anyone that a, has attained unto riches has come to themselves and thought, well, much like Solomon, I have gardens, I have homes, I have all this fruit, Of all this stuff. And what does it mean? Vanity of vanity. All is vanity. It's vexation of my soul. Because one day I'm going to be gone. And all this is going to go unto my children. And what if they're just a bunch of fools? (laughs) Wow, Solomon. You've got some real issues. When you have everything. And you're still not happy. Think, ooh. Something's up. This is why God is telling us, or at least one of the reasons why he's saying, when you love money, it will pierce you through with many sorrows because you're going to find out just how shallow of an existence that you're living. Godliness, on the other hand, that really arises into a position of contentment when we are recognizing that everything we have and everything we are and everywhere we're going are all authored by the god of creation we'll say okay lord you've blessed me this hurts i don't necessarily like all these things that are going on but you are orchestrating my life I will live my life out in your presence, recognizing your right as the sovereign creator, sustainer, and judge. Godliness with contentment is great gain because I don't have to worry and wonder, oh, how is it all going to turn out? How is it all going to turn out? No, the Lord has every breath, every breath numbered. All your days, Every one of them, written in a book, before you lived out the first one. It's incredible. So this is, this is information. We take this information, okay, we learn it, all right. And then, experience informs what we learn from theological truth. Life experiences tend to strip away confidence in the things of this life. The new car gets a scratch. The house needs to be painted. Some of you like that. I wish I did. Your body starts to hurt. Your baby becomes an adolescent. Your husband's jokes become a little old. What types of things did Paul experience that brought the theological truths to a place where he understood them in experience? Trial. Persecution after persecution. Read Acts. Read the book of Acts. Just read it. You'll find Paul constantly under attack. Chapter 14, chapter 16, the whole last part of it is him heading off for trial. The book of Philippians is written while he's in jail. We know the book of 2 Timothy is written while he's in an in underground jail with rotten, disgusting sewerage flowing around him. He learned through the things that God brought him through because God sovereignly has a purpose and a plan for all of our lives. So contentment can be learned through biblical truths and through life experiences. Now, back in Philippians chapter 4, we we, want to come to the second term for learning here. It's uh, chapter 4 of Philippians. It's 982 in a church Bible. In verse 12, we come to another Greek term. Well, we're going to come to English, but I'm going to tell you what the Greek term is. In verse 12, he says, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance, and need. The second word for learned is the Greek term mueo. I have learned the secret. The word is used in pagan religions of that time for an initiation special knowledge into a certain plane of spiritual truth. Well, Paul's not talking about that. He's using that cultural background to help him to understand that there's a way in which he came to learn through, through what God has taught him, through the truth of the scriptures and what God has taught him through his life experience, but also this otherworldly demonstration of learning. God supernaturally and graciously gave to Paul the ability to be content in the worst situations. He writes this in this tense and mood. Ready? it, It is a perfect, perfect tense. Perfect is a past tense word. Something that took place back here. But it has continuing results. So when he says, I have learned the secret... I have learned this, and that, that, that lesson is an ongoing demonstration in my life. This is one of those lessons I'll never forget. And it's passive. means it comes from outside of him. It comes from outside of him. Now that's important in the context, because in the first century, when they talked about contentment, it was all about something that came from uh, being self-sufficient. I have everything I need. I have no further needs. I have become self sufficient in that you can take all my stuff and I'll be fine. You can give me all this stuff and I'll be fine. I am self sufficient. Paul is not saying that. He's using a perfect, happened in the past, continuing results, and a passive, God did this. God taught me this. This is a divine empowerment. I wonder, ladies and gentlemen, Can we ask God for this kind of knowledge? Can we ask God to teach us to be content with such things as we have? Can we ask God, dear God, please teach me the secret of facing much, plenty, and hunger? God, can you please teach me to be content when I'm brought low? And when you cause the situations around me to abound, can we ask Him to do that? I think we can. I think we can. Contentment is learned. We saw that. Contentment is not based upon our circumstances. Finally, and it's related to that last portion, contentment is found in God's gracious supply. Verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Will you read it with me? I can do all things through him who strengthens me. All right. Take a break. Take a deep breath. This verse does not mean if you can conceive it, you can achieve it. This verse does not tell you that even though you have a small IQ, you're going to do really great in your SATs if you'll just pray. This verse does not tell you if you don't exercise and you go into the military and you take your physical readiness test that you'll pass it. Because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's what it says. It also has a context, right? Right? Doesn't have a context? So like, you mean I can't fix my car if I have no mechanical knowledge? You mean I shouldn't tackle that electric electrical problem in my house if I don't know what I'm doing? Probably not. Let, let me give you, a, here's, here's tip number one. If you're going to mess with electricity in your house, turn off the circuit breaker. Now you have at least a little tidbit of knowledge before you start messing around with it. But, Philippians 4.13, by and large, is not going to help you with your electrical problem. What it does help us with is what God is telling us in the context. The context is about being able to be content regardless of the circumstances that we are in. And so what he tells us in verse 11, again, we're going to get that, those generic words again, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned... In whatever. I have learned in whatever. In verse 12, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every. I have learned the secret of facing plenty. Verse 13 in the original reads like this, or this idea All things I am able to endure because he gives strength to me. All things. I am able, is what it says. I added endure just for a little help. All things I am able because he gives strength to me. Because of him who gives strength to me. Those are the, those, that's what it is in the Greek. All things. Well, he just kind of gave us all things in verse 11 and 12. The situations you're in. Whatever you find yourself in, whether it's in plenty or in lack, God says, I will give you the ability to endure it all because I'm the one who gives strength to you. And so we recognize that contentment is found in God's gracious supply. Why is this? When we truly enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ, we find what our soul longs for. We don't always know, we think we know, if I just have a wife, if I just have a husband, if I just have a child, if I just have a home, if I just have a car, if I just have a job, if I have this kind of job, if I can just get this education, if I can just write my first book, whatever it is, if I can just get this, I'll feel better. But we're wrong. We're wrong. That doesn't mean that having a wife, I, I, I can't fathom life without my wife. She's my absolute best friend. She thrills my soul every day. I mean that literally. And then I see my two girls, and they just remind me of my wife. And so it's like a triple blessing. Then I've got my boys, and they remind me of me. And so <laughs> do what you want with that. No, I love them. You, 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 know, you know how much I love my boys. Um, these things, while wow, they're so helpful they are, they're wonderful accompaniments in life they're, they're wonderful garnishes to life they're wonderful things, blessings from God in life they don't fill the longing soul only Jesus can do that the rest that Jesus brings to a weary soul, is otherworldly. You know, many of you know, what that means. You know what that's like. You've experienced God doing something for you. You would have no ability to do this. I'm talking about contentment now. It cannot be taught through lessons. It must be spiritually given. This is when we realize, with Abraham that God is our exceedingly great reward. This is when we realize with the psalmist that God is our portion forever. This is when we realize with Paul that Christ is our life. Then we're able to face the moments of poverty with a renewed vision and the moments of great wealth with a renewed vision. Because we agree with what God wrote through Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16 and following, where he wrote, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day day. By day, for this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are what? Eternal. God has a way of doing this. Bringing our attention from here on this plane up. Up. This is where contentment resides. When you and I recognize, and we try with our finite minds to understand, okay, this life is so short. Everyone has told me, since I first had Alexis in 2002, it's gonna go by fast. Hey, listen, I try to listen. Drew comes up in 2003. I've been listening. It's gonna go fast. I got it. I believe you. I agree. 2005, Aiden comes along. I believe you. I believe you. People are still telling me, I agree. I'm seeing it happen. You guys have children, they come up, they're gone. I see it. I'm not, you know. But then, you're like, wow, that's fast. I can't believe it. I'm 42. I came to this church in 1991. I remember that there was a, a surprise birthday party for the Krozics. They had just turned, I, I shouldn't t- say what the age is. They don't care, I, thank you. They just turned 40. I was 15. Like, they're like wicked old. <laughs> I'm older now than they were then. And I look at my kids and, I, and I, I try to look at my kids in that light and think, man, they think I'm wicked old. <laughs> they do. It's unbelievable. Point is, it's just flying by. The day is coming. Maybe today, where our Savior will return. The day is coming, maybe today, where he might take me home or you home. You don't know when that day is. Eternity is coming. Keep that in mind when you're suffering. Keep that in mind when you're rebounding. Keep in mind the fact that God owns everything all around you and that God orchestrates your life. We can be content. Because we know how the story ends. Because we know it's not a story. It's real life. And the day is coming. I'm going to see my Savior face to face. And what glory that will be. This this is what can sustain us through dry, (coughs) weary, empty times. The day is coming. Look. Look.